Hello, my name is Neil Ferguson, the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and this week we're doing a little table turning. For a change, I'm going to moderate our discussion in my capacity as the recently minted American citizen who moved to California from Massachusetts just five years ago. That means I get to ask the questions. Actually, it's my penance for being late to last week's show. Answering, but also asking if I know him, some of the questions is my colleague John Cochran, Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, and best known these days for his widely read Grumpy Economist blog. Back from a week off is General H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor to President Donald Trump and author of Battlegrounds, The Fight to Defend the Free World, and Hoover's Food and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow. And last but by no means least, instead of moderating as he usually does, Bill Whalen, the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, is going to be in the nearest thing to a hot seat we have on this show. And that's because he knows much, much more than I do about one of the main topics of our show, Californian politics. It's Tuesday, September the 14th, and as we speak, Californians are casting ballots in a recall election, essentially voting on whether or not to fire and replace Governor Gavin Newsom. He's hoping to avoid the fate of Gray Davis, who was removed and replaced by Arnold Schwarzenegger back in 2003. But that's not all that's going on in the North American world of politics. Up in Canada, Justin Trudeau could be looking at defeat in his country's snap election in less than a week's time. In some ways, Newsom and Trudeau are cut from similar cloth. Sons of their country's elite, generally considered good-looking and committed to progressive political stances, which they don't always quite live up to in their own cosseted lives. And this just a few weeks after President Joe Biden's net approval rating turned negative for the first time since his inauguration. Not to mention the growing confidence of Republicans that even if they can't get rid of Governor Newsom, they have a good shot at winning back not only the House, but also the Senate in next year's midterm elections. So why all the pushback against the left-leaning leaders? Is political disgruntlement just a function of COVID's obstinate refusal to go away thanks to the infectiousness of the Delta variant? Or is the North American public tiring of virtue-signaling left-wingers who don't quite walk the walk? Think Governor Newsom's COVID regulation-busting French laundry feast. But how about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's appearance at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art's annual gala in a fancy white designer dress? bearing the slogan, tax the rich. Okay, Bill, help me figure this out. Why is Gavin Newsom facing a recall? Well, first, great introduction, Neil. I may be out of a job come next week, uh, if you want to keep doing this. Uh, why is Newsom facing a recall? Uh, in a word, COVID, Neil, and two words that you already gave away, French laundry. And then three words, governor's bad decisions. Um, people tend to forget that this recall effort was underway well before uh, COVID. In fact, if you look at the actual petition to recall the governor, it's how you do it in California. You have to collect signatures from voters commensurate to 12% of the turnout in the previous election, Neil, or about 1.5 million votes. If you look at that petition, the word COVID, the word pandemic is not to be found. It's a rather familiar list of conservative gripes with regard to California. Immigration, abortion, lack of um, death penalty, gun control, uh, too much spending by government. 
but the process was moving along at a very slow pace. Uh, as of about September, only about 675,000 signatures, Neil, and they went to court and the recall campaign said, look it, we're trying to collect signatures at a time when the state is shut down. We need more time. The judge agreed and the judge granted a four month extension to March the 17th to collect signatures. Mm-hmm. Neil, that occurred on November the 6th of 2020. That same night, Gavin Newsom hopped into a car and went to the French Laundry and had dinner at the French Laundry. One week later, the San Francisco Chronicle reports on that dinner, and it's the worst possible story imaginable for Newsom. Why? Well, first of all, he is uh, being hypocritical. He's telling everybody to stay home, don't go out, and he's going out. Secondly, French Laundry. Could we find a title that just speaks more to just, just you know, extravagance and just smug self-entitlement of a Marin County person like Newsom? And then thirdly, Neil, he wasn't honest and upfront. He said no COVID protocols were broken. So, of course, a photograph promptly emerged of him sitting at a table with friends and lobbyists, not wearing a mask. And so he had a problem. It then gets compounded worse. This is kind of interesting nuance of California politics. Most Californians, Neil, cannot spot their governor in a police lineup, Arnold Schwarzenegger being the exception to the rule. The more California saw of Newsom over this period of time, the less they liked him. Why? Number one, the French laundry dinner made them mad. Number two, Newsom started lamenting that he knew what it was like to be a Zoom parent when it turns out that his kids were actually going to a private school in Sacramento. So wrong. And then thirdly, he started doing daily news conferences, Neil, where he tried to give you an update on COVID. And Newsom has kind of an odd speaking pattern. He tends to speak in techno terms, techno babble, if you will. And instead of being clear, concise, and reassuring, it was just the opposite. And so now California's got a close-up of the governor. They didn't like it. And the process took off. And before he knew it, they had 2 million signatures. It ended up being 1.7 million verified and game on for the recall. Okay, that all makes great sense to me. And it reminds me of something our colleague, Victor Davis Hansen wrote, uh, which uh, uh, invoked H.G. Wells's uh, wonderful book, The Time Machine. He talked right. about Newsom personifying a, quote, new plutocracy of Eloy, whose wealth exempted them from all worries about the mundane problems of the distant and despised Morlock others. But for uh, for all that, it doesn't look as if he's going to be recalled. It looks as if he's going to pull this off and survive. So the really hard thing might be to explain why, after all you've told us, uh, he's not being swept from power in an avalanche of popular indignation. Well, Neil, it's math. Uh, 1.7 million signatures, uh, signatures might get you into a recall, but you need far more than that to win an election in California. Uh, let me put this in very H.R. McMaster terms for you. Uh, Gavin Newsom has one thing going for him in California, far more Democrats than Republicans, a difference of about 5 million Californians in registration, 5 million more Democrats than Republicans. Secondly, Neil, he took advantage of a provision, a loophole in the recall law because he is not considered a candidate. He's a subject to the recall. He does not have to um, live by campaign donation limits so he can raise unlimited amounts of money. Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, gave him $3 million. The governor very quickly put together an $80 million war chest, Neil, and he spent it doing what you do to win in California. He advertised relentlessly on television, $36 million on advertising in August alone. If you were sitting out here watching the Olympics, you could not escape Elizabeth Warren, who was around the clock doing commercials for the governor. In H.R. McMaster terms, Gavin Newsom controls the ground game because he has more voters. And secondly, he controls the airwaves, so he controls the air as well. And H.R., I think politics and the military are similar. If you control the ground and control the air, you tend to win campaigns. Can I ask him? Well, go ahead, John. As, as it looks like, Neil warned I might ask some questions. Uh, <laughs> as, as the polls show- I Nearly that, made uh, it to 10 minutes. Wait, hey, well, we, well, we need well, to remind yeah. ourselves that as we are talking, 
We don't know the results, uh, and listeners may pick up on this after the result is known. So reminder, uh, you know, you don't know history in advance. So for all we know, a huge upset is coming, but it's just just not looking that likely. Well, and let me me clarify one thing before John jumps in. Welcome to my world, Neil, by the way. Uh, under the uh, recall rules, uh, we're playing by the same rules as last year's presidential election. The governor declared a state of emergency, and he and the legislature agreed to mail ballots to every one of California's 22 million registered voters. So every Californian has a ballot to cast in this election. If he or she chooses, they don't have to worry about catching COVID or go down to the polls or where to find a polling place given the September election. So this adds to the advantage for the governor. So that's that's why this is a bit of a crapshoot in guessing because we don't know the turnout. But again, if you give every California need a chance to vote because there are 5 million more Democrats, you tend to win elections. Sorry for butting in, John, but go ahead. Uh, as the polls do look like uh, Newsom will, will uh, survive, the question being by how much now. But I want to ask you, um, this one seemed to me like uh, easy, a pop-up fly, and yet I'm surprised at uh, how much difficulty uh, the California Republicans are having. You mentioned a, a list of issues, immigration, right. abortion, uh, death penalty and guns, uh, a set of issues that is suicide politically to uh, campaign on in California. Right. What would seem easy is that if the set of issues were fire, water, power, schools, mm-hmm. crime, and homelessness, oh, and and the uh, housing, which is a continuing disaster that Newsom promised to fix and did uh, nothing about. Right. Simple governance as opposed to a litany of right-wing issues, which has allowed Newsom to paint this as him versus Trump, a competent uh, organized party uh, puts together candidates with a message that has been tested and has some chance of winning and who have some experience. Now, perhaps all of the electorate has gotten used to nobody with experience and knowledge of how to be a politician is, is competent, so we might as well elect radio hosts. And I have nothing against Larry, Larry Elder. He seems like an interesting person, a radio host, but he has no political experience. He's not the sort of person an organized party would mm-hmm. have put up if it wanted a chance uh, at, at winning a serious governorship uh, against uh, uh, against Gavin Newsom. So right. does this just does this signal the internal implosion of the California Republican Party as an organization, as what a political party is supposed to be? What the heck is going on? You know, John, Will Rogers famously said, I, uh, I'm a Democrat. I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat. And if Will Rogers were alive today and living in the Palisades, as he did back in the 1930s, he might be saying I'm a Republican in California because I don't belong to an organized party. The California Republican Party did not endorse a candidate uh, in this recall. Uh, but more bothersome, John, is that it didn't seem to mobilize in any way to help their candidates in this regard. If you look at the, the financial numbers, and I hate to dwell on money, but money really is king in California in campaigns. Whereas the governor has $80 million, Elder has about $8 million, John Cox, who ran against Newsom in 2018 and lost by 24 points, he has about $8 million. And then there's Kevin Faulkner, former mayor of San Diego, John, who's running on good government. His record uh, has been for several years fashioning himself as a moderate. He's pro-choice. He's open to a pathway for citizenship for illegal immigrants and so on and so forth. A guy who's been thinking long and hard about how to get 50% of the vote in California has about $2.5 million. So the party is number one, not managed to steer any money to Faulkner. I don't understand why. Maybe he just doesn't interview well. We'll, we'll find out after the election. 
election. Secondly, what you don't see out here, John, you don't see independent expenditures against the governor. Under California rules, John Cochran, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster could spend tens of millions of dollars against Gavin Newsom if they wanted to, as long as it's not coordinated with the campaign, an IE, an independent expenditure. But you've seen zero of those on the airwaves. And I think that speaks to two things here, John. Number one, uh, people who do invest in California making a very calculated choice that they think either a Newsom will survive or if he doesn't, a Democratic legislature certainly will. And they'll take notice of who gave money where. But secondly, John, I think you know, investor lack of confidence. And I just know that anecdotally talking to people out of here who give money uh, to, to candidates, they tend not to give in California because they just see it as a losing cause. So if we're going to talk about a Republican renaissance in California, John, part of it's going to be just kind of overcome, overcoming what I'm afraid is a defeatist mentality. Um, I spent some time looking at stats from this century on statewide elections in California. If you take Arnold Schwarzenegger out of the equation, John, Republicans have lost 52 of three, 53 statewide races out here. That includes the state constitutional races, Senate and presidency. Uh, if you're a savvy investor, why would you invest in a franchise that's lost 52 or 53 times? So, John, I've got a question for you, which is on, on the economics. Maybe part of the problem is that despite all the things that uh, California's Democrats have done wrong, which our colleague Michael Boskin listed the other day in an excellent webinar, but despite all the kind of things you can grumble about here, which you just mentioned, uh, from uh, schools to wildfires to poverty, you name it, California's got it. Despite all this, California still has a phenomenal economy. I must admit, I was slightly startled to, to realize that its GDP is greater than that of my original country, the United Kingdom, not to mention France with two thirds of the population. So, I mean, my question is, is John, is the, is the kind of reckoning still to come? And I want to, I want to particularly reference a great piece Kevin Williamson did in the National Review, California, a crossroads in which he compares California to Detroit before the downfall. Quote, Detroit thought it could count on Ford, Chrysler and General Motors forever. Silicon Valley thinks it can count on Apple, Amazon and Facebook forever. The complacent leaders in Michigan were dead wrong. So are the ones in California. Question to you as an economist, is California just on the brink of really going down economically the way Michigan did uh, after the automobile uh, manufacturers lost their edge? And will that be the moment Republicans finally get their mojo back or not? Well, whether it's there's there's not just the Republicans have to get their mojo back or their acts together. There is still a party deciding whether it's the party of Trump or the party of good governance. There is in California a uh, third party efforts because they recognize this brand is just broken. So I, uh, and there is dissension within the Democratic Party. Uh, right. That party is also uh, combined of, uh, of various coalitions, which B Bill may want to talk more about. Will the the mod the moderate squad uh, take over from the coastal? Uh, elite progressives in in trying to bring some good governance back within the Democratic Party, right. uh, but something's got to change. And I think the danger you pointed to is exactly uh, the one to worry about. Detroit was the Silicon Valley of the U.S. in the 1920s. Uh, beautifully high property values, uh, the place where innovation was happening, uh, companies were being started, lots of money was being made, and it uh, it it got it it died from. The sort of standard progressive policies that uh, 
progressive in quotes that California is trying to impose. What we certainly see already is, uh, and, and I, I hope uh, I'm gonna encourage Bill to come back in. Bill and Leo Hanian are doing a wonderful series documenting exactly what's going on. Uh, companies are moving away in droves. Already um, uh, what was happening is that Silicon Valley was the spot where you could needed to start a company. You needed the venture capital. You needed the engineers to come. You needed to start. You, you want some guy who can program Java HTML and put together something quick. You can get him or a gal uh, here quickly. But the minute it's a company, an operation, you, you move the HR uh, out to Nevada as fast as you can. You move the production out as fast as you can. The big tank companies are already quickly diversifying into Nevada, Texas, Colorado, wherever they can. Uh, the, the part of running a big company, not just starting a big company, uh, in part because housing is so incredibly expensive that you just can't afford to house people here. Mm -hmm. uh, the business climate is so awful that you, you, you just cannot build office buildings around here. Uh, so I see that pattern. Uh, the aerospace industry left uh, a generation ago. Um, so that pattern certainly seems to be the danger California will We'll face now forever. Um, the weather's still pretty nice, uh, so uh, it could be a, it could end up. You know, Carmel doesn't have a lot of businesses, but still has a fair amount of money because retired people move there. Um, so uh, you know, California has better weather than Detroit, but that's all you're trading on. Once you have immensely high taxes, a regulatory environment that makes it nearly impossible to, to run a business or to expand a business to invest. Uh, and now um, the, the problems of crime, homelessness, making it not even a, a pleasant place to live. The 20-somethings uh, don't want to live in San Francisco anymore. They want to move out as well. So I want to bring HR in at this point by slightly pivoting to the geopolitics of, of California, which is not something that gets discussed nearly often enough. But John, as you talk about the big tech companies that are the equivalent of the big Detroit uh, automobile manufacturers, I'm thinking, you know what, those tech companies are pretty strategically important these days, whether it's artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing, you name it, a lot of the cutting edge research is being done at the big tech companies, notably Google, Apple, and, and the others. And so I wanted to to ask HR a question prompted by something that my friend Janan Ganesh wrote in the Financial Times this week about the state's, quote, China-facing geography, and here I go with the quotation, from the naval base San Diego to the Bay Area's tech exports, California is the conduit through which the U.S. vies with its rival across the sea. Its sense of detachment for the national story will be ever harder to sustain. HR, you've been with us now uh, for quite some time, enough, I think, to get a feel for uh, this part of the United States. Do you, do you ever wonder if there's a kind of uh, disconnect between California's strategic importance and the way Californians think about it? I think that, I think that disconnect has been growing in, in, in recent years, you know, based on the, on the assumption, right, that, that China, having been welcomed into the international order, would, would liberalize, would, you know, would play by the rules and then liberalize its economy and, and its form of government. I, I think we're coming back more into alignment. Remember, you know, I mean, the, the way that, that uh, Silicon Valley really, right. really uh, became a center of economic activity was in large measure with defense investments, right, in the aerospace industry, as, as John mentioned, and, and, and that innovation ecosystem developed around universities and cutting edge technologies and, and those who were applied to defense and, and oftentimes in these closed research and development systems and, and efforts that would then spin out technologies into the commercial sector after they were developed. That ecosystem has shifted now 
to, to really innovation happening mainly in the private sector with much of this innovation having defense application. But at the same time, as that shift was happening, California, I think, really designed for itself more of an internationalist identity. I mean, just look on an iPhone, right? It says designed in California. It doesn't say designed in the United States of America. You know? And so this, this sort of trans-Pacific experiment, to use the title of a book, on China's and, and California's relationship with one another, I think is under duress because now I think everybody's working, waking up, including tech companies, to the grave danger of the Chinese Communist Party, not only in connection with its unfair trade and economic practices and sustained campaign of industrial espionage, but the way that the Chinese Communist Party is using technology to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on power, to extinguish human, extinguish human freedom, and to gain a differential advantage over us, not only militarily, but also in the emerging data-driven uh, global economy to get, to, get a, to, to get an exclusive grip on critical supply chains involving you know, rare earths and, and battery manufacturing, uh, for, for example, uh, and to do so in a way that will place future generations of Americans uh, at, at a, in a position of disadvantage, uh, as, as well as eliminate the competitive advantages of, of California's tech companies. So I think it's changing in a positive direction now, but it was this sort of this moral equivalence of, you know, we're all just citizens of the world, you know, that, that I think led to a degree of complacency that allowed China to really do a great job of infiltrating tech companies and infiltrating really research labs and research facilities that were funded even by the U.S. Departments of Defense and, and Energy. So, so I, I have to push back just a little against a small part of what HR said, because my job is to- Because it wouldn't be and, good, fellas, if you didn't, first of all. <laughs> my, my job is to object to mercantilism in all its form. Remember that the point of trade is not for existing companies to make profits by selling. Uh, trade is trade. The ports remain clogged. Cost ten thousand bucks to get a container from China to uh, the U.S. On up from two thousand, um, uh, you know th that that's going on as much as it ever ever used to. You know when you say exclusive grip grip on supply chain, remember China has to import as much as it has to export. A supply chain is a supply chain. Things bounce back and forth. In fact, you know the the, the U.S. stopping China from importing things could slow down its economy uh, very drastically. They, you don't have control over things as, as much as you think uh, in trade. The tech companies, um, at, at last report, Google and, and Apple, many of their employees are refusing to work on anything uh, revolving defense. So our defense and, and security tech is strikes me as a quite separate question, which I'm, I want to hear more about from the tech companies in general. In fact, in the larger scheme of things, tech strikes me that it has made it, it, it isn't the Detroit of the 1920s uh, with lots of companies innovating. It is the Detroit of the big three, maybe the Detroit of the 1950s. Tech has now turned into a regulated oligopoly, uh, was con is still a little bit innovative in its desire to harvest data. But as far as the big new inventions, that is not our current tech companies, which might be therefore ripe for their own disruption from something else that comes from somewhere else. But nobody these days would go out and say what's good for Google is good for the United States in the way that what was good for General Motors was good for the United States. I think, I mean, Williamson's point is, I'm, I'm sure, the, the Detroit of the 1950s, not the 20s, when already it was 
uh, almost oligopolistic. And as he as he observes, as those dominant car manufacturers began to lose out to foreign competition, it did not cause the political pendulum to swing back. On the contrary, a death spiral uh, was what you got, where uh, where the democratic one party state kind of dragged uh, dra- went down or dragged down the economy with it. But but HR. But this just, is wait wait. You just said something very important. This is the political spiral. We'll get back to HR and, and China and so forth. The political spiral, which we've seen uh, many times, is a, a country, an area is falling to pieces, yet everybody wants their piece out of the carcass. So you're unable, the taxes go up, the businesses move out, the taxes go up even more. Uh, the, you, the demand for pensions for government employees overwhelm the government uh, state, uh, the government uh, finances, so they start cutting money on police, so crimes so gets worse so that more companies move out. And nobody's able to uh, organize that grand bargain where we, we stop giving up our desire to, to take it from everybody else, meanwhile sinking the whole ship. And that is the political spiral that California, through its massive failures of governance, is, is, uh, is, is open to. And I know now, that Elon Musk may have left California, but he certainly hasn't left China. I want to use the moderator's privilege of, of slightly pivoting uh, to to another issue on uh, our agenda, and that is whether there are any good news stories anywhere in this country uh, for Republicans dealing with uh, blue state politics. And Bill, one of the things you were writing about just the other day was what California Republicans can learn from their Massachusetts counterparts. And this I know a little bit about after 12 years of, uh, of living and working there. Yeah. Uh, I got quite used to divided government and having uh, Mitt Romney as a governor. And now we, we have uh, in, in Baker a, another Republican governor. What is it that, in your view, the, the, the Republicans have got right in Massachusetts that they don't seem able to get right in California? Well, Neil, I thought about this and I give you credit because you raised this on a previous show or an off-camera conversation we had where you asked, how can Republicans win in Massachusetts, but not California? It's a very good question, Neil, because if you look at the disparity in voter registration, it's 22 points in California. It's about 21 points in Massachusetts with one important difference. Republicans are only 10% of the electorate in Massachusetts, Neil, but Democrats are only 30%. So 54% of that electorate is up for grabs, Neil, so-called unenrolled voters. It's like healthcare, but they call them unenrolled in Massachusetts. It means independence. You might have been one of them when you lived there. And I couldn't force- vote. So I wasn't a citizen then. I just had to watch. Oh, but Neil State, you could still vote in Massachusetts. Trust me, there are ways to do that. But <laughs> I, um, I wouldn't break the law like that. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I'm, a, I was a law-abiding non-citizen. Yeah, that sounds more like Cochran, but not the Boy Scout McMaster. But anyway, Massachusetts, um, Republicans have looked at the landscape and realized that we have 10% of the vote out here. We're not going to win with 10% of the vote. Even if we peel off Democrat votes, we have to appeal to the 54%. And if you look at the last six or so elections in Massachusetts, Neil, for governors, Republicans have won four at the same time California's uh, Democrats win five out of six here. Republicans won four out of six there. It's pretty simple. It's Darwinism, Neil. They've adapted to their environment. Look at Mitt Romney. He was a one-term governor back in the early 2000s in Massachusetts. Not the, not the Mitt Romney you saw when he ran for president, very much a social conservative. Mitt Romney said he would not take away abortion in Massachusetts. Mitt Romney was very warm, no pun intended, toward climate change when he was a governor. Mitt Romney enacted a health care reform, a health law in Massachusetts, a kind of eerily paralleled Obamacare. And when he ran for president, this was a big problem for him. Not the Mitt Romney who went national. 
you look at the current governor of Massachusetts, uh, Neil Charlie Baker, who at various times has been the most popular governor in America, according to opinion polls. I saw one survey that had him more popular than Dunkin' Donuts, which for some people is the unofficial state food of Massachusetts. <laughs> Charlie Baker uh, has managed to survive. Now, he may be up for re-election next year for a third term, which might be problematic, but he has thrived in Massachusetts, Neil, again, by adapting. Again, he's embraced climate change. He's been very aggressive on uh, vaccine, vaccination mandates, Neil, and he has never shied away from picking fights and getting into scraps with Donald Trump. In other words, these are things that the majority of Massachusetts would salute. So you look at Cal- California, this compares to what John was talking about, you're going to have to pick up issues which have resonance with the majority of the voters, not the dug in 35% of the electorate, but the 50% plus one who can actually deliver a victory for you. It's funny you should mention vaccines because a couple of Republican governors are having a somewhat torrid time yes. uh, with COVID right now. And I wanted to swing our conversation to uh, the situation in Florida Uh, Mm -hmm. where Governor DeSantis has seen his uh, net approval fall 14 points, Texas, similar kind of story for Governor Abbott. And the narrative that is certainly out there in uh, in media land is that this is because they've mishandled uh, COVID by essentially putting themselves on the other side of all the debates uh, from from face masks to Mm -hmm. vaccination, and in particular, resisting any compulsion for citizens in their, in their states to wear masks or, or get right. vaccinated. And the argument uh, is that that's why the Delta wave has been so much more uh, of a problem in states such as Florida and Texas, to say nothing of other southern states. Right. Um, I wanted to bring John in here because, John, uh like me, you've been a close uh, student of the COVID pandemic and uh, not only its economics, but its wider ramifications. Do you buy this story that uh, that, that there is a, a kind of fundamental difference between red state and blue state America when it comes to a vaccination in particular? And that explains uh, the divergence uh, in hospitalization and death rates during the Delta wave? Um, to some extent, um, masks are they work a little bit, but much less than people give them credit for. Uh, you cannot walk into a crowded bar and think you're safe because you wear your mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's perhaps the most uh, political, uh, you know, it's the most potent symbol, uh, but not the secret to reducing a reproduction rate from six to one, which masks do not do. Vaccines are very helpful. Right. And the step against vaccines, I, I think is, you know, we, we had a chance, come on guys, let's all get vaccinated before the Delta wave came out and the U.S., blew that one um, in many ways. But it is a remarkable step back. <clears throat> in fact, the <clears throat> complaining about Newsom, uh, you know, our, our, our Republican candidates are saying the first thing they're going to do is get rid of the masks and, and vaccine right, mandates, right. rather than what one should be angry about Newsom at is the way he handled things a year ago. But I guess a year is too long for anyone to remember uh, right. about how lockdowns and endless press conferences and, and the just gross incompetence the first time around. That incompetence is still around, just that, uh, you know, America, our bureaucracy has given up on anything but the, the, the fantasy that slightly changing mask mandates is going to make any difference whatsoever to the spread of a disease. And, and the fact we just got to, you know, people got to get vaccinated and, and stop complaining about it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think it's as potent. And it's also not just uh, Republican Democrat makes for a lovely uh, um, a narrative in today's politicized media. 
but there's income, race, and other categories where people are refusing vaccinations, uh, which is kind of a tragedy. Uh, you know, imagine, <laughs> imagine our ancestors in the middle of uh, a wave of typhus or cholera telling and telling them that your descendants will be handed over a weekend the answer to a global pandemic. And somehow they couldn't get the FDA to certify it for nine months. And then when it finally came out, they couldn't get people to take it. And it, and it kept on going. It's really kind of a tragedy that, that we can't get this but vaccine. John, we're talking about data, guys, aren't we? And, and I took a look at the data to see if there was this big difference between, let us say, California and Florida. And here are the percentages of the population of those states fully vaccinated against COVID-19. California, as of yesterday, September the 13th, 57.2%, Florida, 55.2%. So two percentage points difference. Yeah. That doesn't seem to me to but explain Neil, 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 I think you're missing something here in that uh, vaccines have now become a wedge issue in American politics. And you see this here in California. What, is, what has been Newsom's closing argument? He's pushed three buttons to get Democrats to turn out. Number one is abortion, thanks to the ruling in Texas, the Texas law. Uh, secondly, it's the long shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, the ads against Larry Elder show Elder with a thumbs up next to Trump with a thumbs up. And then the third is now vaccines, which he calls a matter of life and death. And let me point your attention to the Commonwealth of Virginia, my, my home state, which used to be a, a very red state until Obama flipped it. Biden carried it by 10 points in 2020. They have a governor's race this fall, Neil, seven weeks from now. And we always look at that as a bellwether because Virginia and New Jersey vote the year after a president comes in. Uh, the Democrat, Terry McAuliffe, he used to be the governor of Virginia. He's running again to get back his office. He is calling his opponent anti science. And that's the buzzword you're going to hear from Democrats, I think, as we get into 2020. Where are you on vaccines? Are you pro-science or anti-science? So I wonder whether this is really something that is going to work uh, into 2022. I, I buy the story that it's helped a lot in the Newsom campaign, and it may right. play some part in Virginia, though I should add that the Percentage of the population fully vaccinated in Virginia is only fractionally above California and 58%. I mean, these differences well, are actually trivial, but I get the point about the wedge issue. But is it a wedge issue in 2022 when the Delta wave will be a distant memory? I'm, let's face it, the Delta it, wave is cresting now, even in the least vaccinated parts it does, Neil, and it, it does, Neil, and it butts up against what other reality in Virginia, um, in that if you look at the Virginia, it's not just a governor's race, Neil, it's also legislative races. And uh, I took my glasses on because I want to read you quickly what the state legislature has done in Virginia. Virginia had a Republican governor for a long time, Republican legislature, and then it flipped after the 2019 election. And the Virginia legislature, Neil, is kind of Nancy Pelosi's every fantasy. Here's what they've done since they took office. They passed voting rights laws. They've abolished a death penalty. They passed gun safety laws. They increased the minimum wage. They declared racism a public health emergency and made it illegal to discriminate against the LGBTQIA community, Neil. Um, I think that vote in the first Tuesday in November is going to be an interesting window into 2022 to see just how much resonance and pushback there is against woke populism. Uh, Neil, keep in mind, Loudoun County, Virginia, which is in the exurbs of Washington, D.C., has been one of the most hotly contested parts of the country when it comes to critical race theory. So while, yes, Democrats may be pushing science as the wedge issue, uh, I think you'll see Republicans pushing back and using the aforementioned woke issues and AOC as the counter. Well, if they can do that, that yeah. would be effective. Uh, I mean, so I just want to emphasize what Neil said, that the, the uh, narrative that vaccination rates explain the change in Delta just doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, you know, it, 
how much natural immunity is there out there? Uh, how much do people see each other? That's what explains the, the fundamental way not to get COVID is not to hang around with people who have COVID. Right. But let's get back to back to back to your your question. Uh, just there was an important point that that needed emphasizing there. You know, this is the big question: is is the next political thing going to be about Trump, guns, abortion? vaccines and masks, that mm -hmm. will be a disaster for Republicans if that's all they can come up with. Or will it be about governance, crime, uh, the the woke revolution, as you called it, um, uh, and, and all the crazy stuff coming out of Washington? Uh, so will there be a competent Republican Party emphasizing issues of simple governance and, per, and personal freedoms, including that to speak, that Americans care about? Or how about national security? Well, HR, it's kind of striking to me thank that you. Joe, Joe yes. Biden's net approval rating turned negative more or less immediately after uh, the absolutely shambolic evacuation of American troops, uh, civilians, and a few others from Afghanistan. And I wonder uh, if you sense a sea change there or whether... Uh, the, the commentators are right who say that this is a kind of one week wonder and will soon be forgotten. I can't help feeling yeah. as I look back on the uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11 of that one major terrorist attack is all it needs to transform our national conversation. But even if that doesn't happen, even if we continue to avoid another 9-11, do you sense that, that the Biden administration committed a, a lasting uh, uh, amount of damage to itself over Afghanistan. And is that something you expect to play into the midterms uh, next year? Yes, I do, Neil. And, and, and the reason is, you know, people, Americans don't want to lose wars. And obviously what we've seen is, is that when you lose a war, especially when you lose a war through self-defeat by signing a surrender agreement with the Taliban right. and then adhering to an agreement that the enemy, that the enemy doesn't, that, 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 you know, doesn't adhere to at all, uh, and then lied to the American people over and over again uh, about the nature of the situation in Afghanistan and the very nature of the enemy, right? What have we heard? Hey, the Taliban is separate from jihadist terrorists. Well, what have we seen? Siraj Haqqani, who's prominent in Al-Qaeda and the head of the Haqqani network as head of security. Uh, we've heard that, well, maybe the Taliban will, will implement a more benign form of Sharia. What do we see? We see summary executions, brutalization of, of women, the extinguishment of, of human rights. You know, we, we, we hear that you know, that, that the Taliban would, would be, may be concerned about the opprobrium, you know, of the international community uh, and therefore will will help, uh, you know, us, our citizens and others who have helped us uh, depart Afghanistan. What more do you need to know other than this, that the supreme leader of the Taliban, Habitul Akhanzada, you know, his son uh, was right. a 17-year-old suicide bomber. And they're talking about interests being aligned without even discussing the ideology of this organization that is determined to thrust Afghanistan back to the seventh century and, and is waging a jihad against all civilized people and is interconnected with these jihadist terrorists. So I think the American people will recognize that they've been lied to, even though the media right. is not highlighting it. Do you remember with Donald Trump, they kept score, you know, of had, hey, this is what the president and the administration have said. Here's what reality is. Who's keeping score now? Do you remember under Donald Trump, everybody was upset about you know, the you? president's mean tweets toward allies. How about leaving actually, the citizens of allied countries behind in an uh, you know, hostage situation? Yeah, so John, I, can, you know, well, I think it's going to continue. Sorry, sorry go on. It's going to continue. I, I, it's a long-term problem. 
Yeah, John, can I can I, I ask something, John, before you have your question? I here as the moderator, and both uh, uh, both John and Bill have been very rudely interrupting HR, and it's outrageous, <laughs> and I'm not even sure I'm going to let you back in. I want to ask him more questions, that's all. Uh, but but uh, He's so great, uh, I want to ask you, another question. As long as you behave yourselves. Uh, uh, Bill, why don't you go first, and then John? Okay, I just want to point out one thing. Kevin McCarthy, who's the House Minority Leader, he aspires to be the Speaker uh, after next year's elections. He's good at two things, folks. He's good at raising money, and he's good at finding candidates. And he he has gone out HR and he's made a point of getting veterans right now. He looks at the House and I think he sees a problem. There are 91 veterans in all of Congress right now, HR, about one in six. That's the lowest it's been since World War II. You go back to 1973, three and four members of Congress had military service. So McCarthy has recruited no less than 144 veterans to run for Congress this year. Uh, that suggests to me that Afghanistan very much is going to be in the conversation, not just the debacle, but also you just think of the image. It's embarrassing. It's a patriotic insult. It just it's American retreat. It's tailor made for for veterans. And I think this is an interesting wrinkle to look at the Congress moving forward. It you know, Congress in 2022 moving beyond. If you get 100 of these veterans in, let's say it could look very much like the Congress in 1946 and 48 when you had very young men like Jack Kennedy and Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford coming to Washington. So I think that's where Afghanistan and national security could play in next year's midterms. Interestingly, one of the unintended consequences of the old volunteer force versus the draft is that you have a much smaller pool of people with military service yes. uh, to bring into the political process. Uh, John, you had a point. So um, I want to ask more questions of HR because he's on a fascinating role here. I mean, it's amazing to me that Biden's only down 45%. The amazing thing about this is he still has 45% approval despite this debacle. But you said, you said, I think unintentionally, we lost the war. That would mean that the war is over, and it is not. Uh, as you keep reminding us, the war is over when the enemy says it's over. The enemy here is not the Taliban in Afghanistan. The enemy is a global uh, a war against Islamic fundamentalism, which will play out across the Middle East and across all sorts of places. Uh, Afghanistan is one little battle in that war, which we chose to chose to lose, but that, that war goes on. And then for that reason, I want to ask you to prognosticate Biden administration has announced they want out of Iraq too. Uh, and and uh, Biden has been remarkably Trump-like in, in uh, proclaiming every defeat to be a wonderful victory. Having had this wonderful victory in Afghanistan, are we really going to repeat the same thing in Iraq as promised? And uh, if not, <laughs> you know, Kennedy famously had a, a, a failure in the Bay of Pigs, recognized that the process was to blame got things back together again, and then successfully navigated uh, the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Is anybody realizing that the process here is uh, completely broken, some heads need to roll, and we better get ready before we do this again in Iraq under exactly the same circumstances? Well, just the scope of this, and this goes back to Neil's initial question, John, is, is that you know, this is going to keep. This is the gift that will keep giving, right? Back to the to the Biden administration, and and the reason is this is a this is a humanitarian catastrophe, which we're just now seeing the beginning of. Uh, we have to confront it, right? Because the last time the Taliban was in power from '96 to 2001, there wasn't even one cell phone in the country, and now everybody has a cell phone. These images will be inescapable. It's a political catastrophe, as we were discussing in connection with our our credibility with our allies and friends internationally. But it's a security catastrophe in terms of the strengthening of jihadist terrorists. What we're seeing play out already is a declaration of victory, obviously, by the Taliban. Somehow, uh, and this gets, to, this gets to Bill's point, I mean, this was an affront, I think, to, to many veterans, that the president announced 
that he was going to adhere to the timeline of withdrawal from Area 60 of Arlington Cemetery. Area 60 is where is where heroes are laid to rest who gave made the ultimate sacrifice in the wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And somehow he, he thought that veterans would think that that was, a, that, that was an appropriate gesture rather than an insult. Because I think there's a misunderstanding. This goes back to Neil's point that very few serve, very few Americans understand the warrior ethos. I mean, warriors don't want pity. What warriors expect, I think, from their political leadership is their determination to achieve an outcome that's worthy of the sacrifice that they see their fellow servicemen and women make and, and the risks that they take in, in, in battle. And so I think all of this is going to continue to play out in a way that is to the profound disadvantage of the of the administration, unless they stop pretending, you know, stop pretending that a lost war doesn't have consequences. Stop pretending that the Taliban is separate from other jihadist terrorists. You know, stop pretending that leaving Afghanistan doesn't put you at a profound disadvantage from counter from a counter terrorist perspective because you have this hype dream of over the horizon capabilities. But I haven't seen any indication that any leader is willing to confront reality. And so I don't think the facts will go away. If, if, if the fourth estate does their job, right, if they expose the reality and draw the contrast between that reality uh, on the ground and what the administration is saying and portraying to the American people, I think the administration is going to have a, a hard time. I mean, you know, I wrote a book about Vietnam years ago and really why Americans lost faith in Lyndon Johnson, the Johnson administration, was because the reality of the war in, in Vietnam was apparent and was in direct contravention to what the Johnson administration had been telling the American people from, from years prior. But, but then once we left, so Neil, I want to ask you as the historian, uh, is not America even more feckless than this? There are humanitarian catastrophes all over the world. The state of women throughout the Middle East is pretty atrocious. Uh, people are dying and starving in all parts of Africa, and we don't seem to care. Uh, really, is that going to bother anyone a year from now uh, and, and still affect things politically? I think it will hugely depend on whether there are consequences for uh, the US homeland. What's fascinating about the war on terror is that globally, terror won. Uh, we don't notice this, but in fact, uh, jihadist activity has spread far beyond the places where American troops were deployed uh, and is now causing uh, mayhem in many parts of, of Africa. Nigeria is the best known example. Somalia is well known, but places like Mali are now being infected by this, this virus. And I think the American public will avert its gaze. It has a good a track record of doing that where Africa is concerned, unless there's spillover uh, into, into American life. I wanna end with a, a question for everybody, uh, lightning round. Uh, big picture. Let's step back. We've talked California. We maybe sounded parochial to some listeners. We talked America. We try to get global with the help of HR. But I want to ask, is the world swinging left or right as we speak? Because my sense is, uh, if I look at Europe, where I have just been, that there's quite a swing to the left discernible, not least in Germany, where the Social Democrats are expected to win the upcoming uh, election. There was uh, a Labour victory in Norway just the other day. Boris Johnson is not quite riding as high as he did in the UK. And uh, I wonder if Newsom's survival is part of uh, the surprising strength of the left globally, because partly because COVID has legitimized the left-wing view that big government 
is the answer. So lightning round, starting with HR, then John, and then Bill can wrap it. Is the world moving left or right? Or is this just a stupid question? HR. Well, I'll just answer from an international perspective. I hope it's swinging to the middle, right? And, and, and rejects both the, the self-loathing philosophy of the far left in which we're defined as the problem. And therefore, you know, our disengagement uh, from abroad is an unmitigated good. I mean, how do Afghan women feel about that philosophy? And, and maybe when, when the, you know, the far left now is arguing for a reduction uh, and, and, and constraining um, of the authorization of, of, of military force that allows us to go after jihadist terrorists internationally, and they're advocating for the terrorists who are interned um, in, 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 uh, in Guantanamo Bay. I mean, they're more concerned about them than they are for, for Afghan women and the innocents that are being victimized and brutalized by, by the Taliban. I don't think that plays well you know, with the vast majority of Americans. And I think it cuts against as well the the, the, uh, the you know the I would say oh, the, the swing the, to the, the center bigoted, you hope the, the bigoted I would say the bigoted neo isolationist far right uh, that saw our disengagement from the world as well as an unmitigated good based on this idea right that you know that those people over there you know they've always been at war with each other there's nothing good that can come of U.S. involvement and and and, and I think that that both are wrong and what we need is a reasoned and sustained approach to foreign policy and national security that prioritizes our interests, as we've been discussing here, uh, and okay. understands both that we do have agency and that there are limits on our agency. You're stressing out the producer by treating the word lightning too lightly. Uh, John, uh, inside <laughs> 60 seconds, please, uh, is the world going left or right? And, and, and do you buy my thesis that COVID has kind of on net benefited the left? Um, I don't buy your thesis, and I'll try for once to be shorter than HR. This is a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> I'm timing you. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not going to make you 60 seconds. Uh, the left is ascendant uh, among international institutions, bureaucracies, uh, those parts of our government and corporate uh, world that are insulated from voters. Uh, the, woke, the woke religion revolution really is taking over there. Uh, however, the right is in complete disarray, um, doesn't know what it stands for uh, and what it is. There's a mass of people who simply want competent and good govern government, and that's why they keep uh, letting one side in because that side is not as bad as the previous one. Uh, Trump won because he wasn't Hillary Clinton. Biden won because he wasn't Trump. The next right. one will win because he or she is not Biden. <laughs> Uh, and so there's this hunger for competent, good governance in the middle, and I can only hope we get that before one of the left or right manages in their uh, obvious efforts to try and take over and not let those untrustworthy voters uh, do what they like to do. COVID should be the lesson that our bureaucracies are completely right. incompetent not to be trusted. However, the usual uh, process of writing down whatever we last did and celebrating it as a wonderful victory, so we're ready to make the same mistakes all over again, seems to be underway. Brilliantly done, John, um, a model of concision. And this leaves only the last, the last words on the subject uh, from Bill Whelan. I have no idea how to deal with getting the last word. I'm so not used to it on this show. Uh, our producer, by the way, says, Neil, we have a lot of time left. So I think I'll go on for about 10 or 15 minutes. Don't give mind. the game away <laughs> like that. No, uh, I, it's a very smart question, Neil. And I think the answer is it's a jump ball. How's that for a weaseling out of a definitive answer? But it begins with Canada, which we haven't talked about. But September 20th, they have a spot election. Justin Trudeau, who runs a minority liberal party, thought that he would stage a spot election to pick up seats in parliament. It appears that it's backfiring. And if you look at what's going on in Canada, Neil, it's 
that's similar to, to, to California and that he's going after conservatives in Canada, mouth-breathing, anti-science conservatives. So let's see if that plays number one. If it backfires against him, that speaks to uh, reacting to the right. I mentioned Virginia. Let's also see if there's a pushback to the right there. But then I think, Neil, you're looking toward the 2022 uh, midterm election and if there's a revolt in Congress or not. But then the pivot out of that, Neil, this is the question moving forward. Will Joe Biden run again for president? But what happens on the Republican side? And again, the long shadow of Donald Trump. If Donald Trump decides to run for president, I pretty I would be willing to bet you a Dunkin' Donut that he will get the nomination because he just needs a plurality to get it. And what do we know about Donald Trump? It's going to be theater. It's not going to be a serious conversation, if you will. So that would be a disadvantage to the right. So I think let's look at Canada. Let's look at Virginia. And then let's just see kind of which party really is kind of willing to take the adult step and, and be a little more sensible. Since we well, have a couple of minutes, uh, Neil, you, you only asked I was just about to wrap. And you don't get to because we just got that we have a couple of minutes. You only ask a question. I know you when you have a really smart answer. So I want to hear your version of the answer to that last question. Yeah, tell us how we all got it wrong. <laughs> well, if you insist, my sense is that this pendulum uh, has swung to the left, uh, that COVID has legitimized big fiscal expansions, mm -hmm. uh, uh, modern monetary theory uh, by, uh, by other means in all but name. And for the moment, this is benefiting parties of the left. Right. But uh, there's gonna be pain uh, and it's already visible in the inflation data. Uh, and not only there. Uh, so if this is a, a, a left-wing swing, I think it will be quite short-lived, especially in the United States, where I'd be willing to bet more than a Dunkin' Donut, who, by the way, aren't sponsoring Goodfellas. It just keeps coming up. I blame you, Bill. I'll bet you any amount of Dunkin' Donuts that uh, another shellacking is uh, in prospect for the Democrats mm -hmm. uh, at, uh, at the midterms uh, uh, next year. And I suspect also in Europe, uh, that the pendulum will quickly swing back to the right because coming soon, and uh, you heard it here first, is a great uh, second uh, migration crisis uh, as the, the numbers that can make their way from Africa and the Middle East uh, and, of course, from Afghanistan to Europe will, will quite potentially, uh, quite possibly dwarf the numbers of, uh, of 2015-2016. So my guess is the world looks a little bit leftish at the moment. Uh, uh, the world has got its, uh, its Met Gala dress on saying uh, tax the rich. But not wearing a when, mask. When the taxes go up for not just the rich, but a whole bunch of other people too, I'll, I would bet that pendulum swings right back to the right. Okay, I'm now going to uh, revert to being moderator and stop opinionating and uh, draw this discussion to a close. Uh, we have uh, another exciting episode of Goodfellas in Prospect uh, one week from now. Uh, we are uh, still in the market for a topic. Suggestions always Welcome. Uh, we could uh, conceivably go for one of our Ask Us Anything sessions. Uh, with that, it only remains for me uh, to wrap, and I hope I'll be reverting to my normal situation and handing the moderator's chair back to a professional uh, like Bill Whalen. I would also like to thank John Cochran at HR McMaster for their always insightful comments and questions. Uh, and thank all of you uh, for listening to another edition uh, of Goodfellows. Uh, it's normally at this stage that Bill tells you to stay safe or something like that. I'm kind of sick of that stay safe stuff. So I'm just going to say stay engaged, keep listening, and we will do our best 
to keep you uh, informed. Uh, with that, it's, uh, it's goodbye from me, Neil Ferguson, and goodbye from the other good fellows. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.